Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber. To improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Welcome to About Progress, a podcast devoted to ordinary people who are striving to improve themselves overcome obstacles, and make something special of their lives, all while maintaining a healthy balance. In short, people who know life is about progress, not perfection. Hello and welcome to the podcast today. Thank you so much for coming back each Wednesday as we talk about all things progress. If you love what you hear today, please share it. Share it with someone you know, a friend, a loved one, or you can share it on social media. Take a screenshot of the podcast and and you can share it that way and tag me at About Progress because I love to interact with you online and I love this community that we have been creating. If you want to see more from me, you can find me on Facebook and Instagram at About Progress and my show notes are always on my website, aboutprogress.com. Before we dive into today's podcast, I wanted to let you know that I have been doing consultations on podcasts. So if you or someone you know is thinking about starting a podcast and they need help (laughs) because there's so much to learn, I would love to help them. Just get in touch with me at packerprogress at gmail.com and I'll tell you more about those consultations that I have been providing. Today we have Julie Taylor on the show. For many years online, she was known for being real, but only she knew the truth that she was hiding an addiction, and one especially riddled with shame, and it's food addiction. Julie talks so much about the transformation that she's been through the past few years, as she learned to identify herself as someone who was addicted to food, what she did to pursue help for it, and how sadly it led from one form of addiction to another for her. It led to the obsession with perfection. But after time, Julie again recognized a need for change. And as she looked at that need for change out of love instead of punishment and out of acceptance rather than hatred, she grew all the more and she is truly real now. I think you're going to love Julie's wisdom and wherever you're at with your relationship with food or other addictions, this is going to help you. Hi, I'm here with Julie Taylor. Thank you for being on the show today. Can you give our listeners an introduction? Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Um, I am Julie Taylor and I live in the Hartford, Connecticut area. We actually just moved here um, with my husband and three kids and I share on Instagram and a YouTube channel that accompanies it, um, 
about empowerment, personal development, and self-love and acceptance. You know, some people reached out to me and recommended that I follow you and that I interview you too. So I've been following you for quite a few months. I, and I got sucked into you real quick. It's, you're, you're a fun follow, a real follow, a deep follow. You're all the kind of follows that I hope for in Instagram. But I've also read a lot of your writing as well. And the word I would use to describe you is real. So I was curious if you have always been this way, always so open about your struggles. Yeah, thanks so much. I actually have, I get that feedback more often than any other feedback, that word real. And Mm -hmm. what's interesting about it is for the first uh, few years that I shared and wrote, it was anything but real. I was working very hard to cover up a lot of things and to put on a show, but I would do it under kind of a quote, real facade. And I would do it, you know, I would show here's me, in pajamas at Walmart at 1.30 a.m. getting cookie dough because life is hard. And, and people would react to that like, oh, you're so real. But I was sharing that side without sharing the depression and the food addiction and the, the, the deeper things that were driving that behavior. I would just show part of it. And I, I became very obsessed with kind of taking control and molding people's views of me. Um, and so I was anything but real, but I was still getting called real. And versus now when I, when I'm very open and honest about the actual root of these things, now I feel comfortable being called real because I feel like that's what I am aiming to do. I'm trying to, to talk about openly the things that I believe not just I struggle with. And I've learned through opening up that I'm never alone and that once you get the conversations going, there's so much power for healing and just simply opening up and talking about it. Oh, there really is. Uh, what what changed that direction for you then? What inspired um, you to actually be really real? It was when we when when I really changed myself, and I I got honest enough with myself to even understand that I was putting on a show. I, I mm-hmm. wasn't even really aware of it. I had gotten so detached from reality and so obsessed with with putting on the show that I didn't even necessarily realize I was doing it. And so when I worked on myself and sort of turned my own life around and changed myself, I was able to be honest enough with myself to realize that I wasn't being honest with anyone else either. And that's what, you know, kind of changed the direction of things for me. Oh, I feel like I'm talking to me in many ways here. We, I, I describe myself as a recovering perfectionist, and I see that in you. And sometimes it just takes a good therapist to slap you figuratively on the side of the head and help you see this is a facade (laughs) you know, you've created a facade in your own mind and for everybody else. Is that what helped you figure that out? Was it a therapist? Was it family? Was it friend? Or was it just the bottom of the barrel? It was a lot of things, but I think it was just, you know, kind of hitting that rock bottom and deciding to be honest enough with myself to accept and, and be okay with saying that things were not okay and that I was not okay. Mm -hmm. And that, that really triggered the ability for me to start working hard on myself and getting honest with myself. Yeah. So, so what was rock bottom for you? What led to that? It was, I always, I always say that my rock bottom was the day that I found out I was pregnant with my third and youngest child. Mm -hmm. And I know that sounds so sad, but that's, that's the honest truth. Mm -hmm. Um, the day I found out I was pregnant with her, I was overwhelmed. I was in a very bad mental space. I was still struggling a lot with depression. Um, I was in the throes of 
an addiction. I was, I was not okay. And the, the news that I was going to have another baby was just too much. I could not handle it. And I, I knew at that moment that if I was going to survive and if this baby was going to survive, something had to change. I could not go another minute living the way that I was. Yeah. Well, I feel like many women can relate to that. You know, it's not, this isn't a selfish, um, moment for you that was you wanting to be better for your baby for your family and for yourself too Um, right okay so you do you do talk and write a lot about postpartum depression but as you said you were battling an addiction as well and that's what I would like to spend our time on um and it's something that you began that you've begun to be more open about now so what was the addiction that you were facing I struggled with food addiction and honestly, I still do. I I think that Mm -hmm. that's something that I'll probably deal with, you know, forever. Um, but there's no, there's no end line. There's no finish line. It's just, you know, progress and working through it. Um, but yeah, food addiction and it's, it's not one that I feel like is talked about a ton. (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah. You know why? I think it's because there's a whole other level of shame put on it compared to other eating disorders. Yes. Um, I feel like um, with with eating disorders, you know, you're not the problem. You have a disease. You have you have a problem and an addiction with all addictions, honestly, not just food. There's such a stigma and there's the opinion that you are the problem. It's your lack of self-discipline. It's your lack of trying you are the problem instead of having a problem. And that induces a lot of shame. You know, there's something wrong with you. You don't have a condition. You are the problem. And that Mm. makes it really hard. Yes. Um, I do relate to that. Uh, That's why I was so private about my own battle with eating disorders, because I did not have, I wasn't even good enough, you know, in quotes, to have the right eating disorder. For me, I had the wrong eating disorder, which had turned into binging and purging through mm-hmm. exercise, which why is why I had that shame. But I think with food addiction, there, that there really is just this whole other level of, of people casting blame on you. And I wanted to know if you can tell us some of the other differences that you think you have learned between food addiction and other eating disorders. I think that they share more in common than I realized when I was going into it because I never would have ever thought that in any form of eating disorder going into kind of when I started to identify that I was struggling with food addiction. I didn't have that label and I never would have thought they were the same, but they share a lot of things like obsession and compulsion with food um, and different behaviors. Um, And I I think, honestly, I, I think they share more in common than they do difference. It's just how in each person, those things manifest themselves in different behaviors and addiction is one form of, of that food obsession and, and the body image problems and all of that stuff wrapped up into, it can come in different packages. And I think it just depends on the person and the personality type of how those, those same issues will manifest themselves differently in different people. So was this addiction something that you had faced throughout your life to some small degree, or did it come into play as you were battling postpartum depression? You know, I was trying to think of a time before I had food issues and body issues. I was trying to think, when did this start for me? And I honestly cannot remember a time in my life before this. I can't remember a time. I was in kindergarten wanting my belly to be smaller. And I I remember being five years old and hearing 
adults talk about baby fat and how people would grow out of baby fat. And I thought maybe that's what I still have. Maybe. And as a five-year-old, I was in kindergarten worrying about, about my body size. And that was accompanied by a total obsession with food. I wanted food all the time. I, I would dream about being a child actor so that I could be on the cereal commercials because they got to eat as much sugared cereal as they wanted, I thought. (laughs) And so, I mean, these are the things that entertain my thoughts. And so that conflict of being preoccupied and obsessed with food and at the same time being very concerned with how my body looked from age five. I mean, I, I don't remember. And I think because of that, because it started so young, I didn't know it wasn't normal for a really long time. I, mm-hmm. I thought that everyone felt the way that I did, and I felt that everyone struggled like I did. And so that's why when people were seemingly effortlessly thin or wouldn't finish their food, I was baffled. I, I was at a play date in like fifth grade, and my friend did not finish the food that her mom had given us for lunch. And I I wanted to eat it. I didn't. But I, I just thought, how could you not finish your food? So I'm just – these patterns started – my entire life. But I also mm. believe that addiction is sort of progress. It progresses, it gets stronger. And I feel like it grew bigger and bigger. And I would find different coping mechanisms to take care of it. And then when each one failed, the problem would get bigger and deeper and spiral more and more out of control. Mm. And so I didn't feel that it was a full blown addiction until I was on my second child sitting in a college classroom. And I first identified my professor, I was in a substance abuse class and he was teaching about the effects of cocaine and talking about drug addicts behavior and the way they act and feel and crave. And I had the, the thought pop into my head of this is how I feel about food. Everything he's saying about meth addicts and cocaine addicts, that's how I feel about food. And that mm-hmm. was the first light bulb moment of like, wow, maybe there is something bigger going on here. Maybe I'm not mm-hmm. just a girl who likes to eat, but still wants to be skinny, you know? Yes. So how much do you think nature and nur- versus nurture come into play with this, this obsession that you had from such a young age? You know, it's interesting. I've, I've thought a lot about this as well, because I, like I said, I don't remember a time before this. So it's hard for me to, there wasn't really any event that, that triggered it. Um, I did grow up in a house that was very nutritious and nutrition conscious. And I, I was not allowed to have junk food or sugar or things like that. They were very restricted. And so sometimes I wonder if that restriction made it so I wanted it more. Um, But, you know, it's really hard to tell because I only know my experience. But from what I've learned in talking to other people who identify as food addicts and struggle with this addiction, I believe a lot of us were born this way. We just were born with this tendency. And I also believe because of other beliefs I didn't turn to other substances. Food was my substance. I chose Mm. to not do drugs and not do alcohol. And at the heart of my addiction was sort of a life coping problem. I've always struggled to cope. And food was the socially acceptable substance. Mm -hmm. And so it's the one that I turned to. And that's the other hard thing about food addiction is it's almost made fun of. So not only do you feel ashamed for your behavior and for identifying this way, but then there's a local soda shop and their punch card says our 12 step program. And, you know, and they, they make fun of, of, of this problem. And so, and when you tell people like, Oh, I have food addiction, a huge percentage of them will laugh at you, especially if you're not 600 pounds because they don't take you seriously. And even my own family, when I, when I first told them that I was going to 
start pursuing this as a as a a cure to my issues I was struggling with they just they no you're not a food what are you talking about you know it's not really socially accepted and often it is mocked of people you know and and it's often hard to decide there's a lot of conversation of are you really a food addict or are you just an emotional eater I mean and there's all these boundaries and lines and different ways to define it and the way that I see it is you can label yourself any way you want and for me I identify a lot with the textbook struggles of a food addict and learning that about myself gave me tools and the power to help myself work on it. And so I'm not going to sit here and argue all day if I'm a true food addict or not. I'm just going yeah. to say that, you know, that, that works for me, that mm-hmm. label helps me almost. Yeah. Sometimes it helps to have, I mean, it, you, you do this with your kids when they're sick. You're just like, I want to know what it is so mm-hmm. I can help it. And it's the same thing here. Taking on that label can be empowering in many ways, like knowing that this is, this is the word. And, and owning it will help me know how to fight it. Right. And help you find the tools to helpfully, you know, work on it. Yes. Let's take a quick mid-episode break. A lot of you have been asking me about Monate, the hair products that I have been using that are toxin-free for eight months that have made a huge difference for my hair and my scalp. But you've been on the fence, which is understandable. But I just wanted to give you a little forewarning that next Friday, the Black Friday, there's going to be a huge, huge deal going on. So keep an eye out for that. If you have been on the fence, that is the time to join because that is the best deal of the year. Um, you can find out more about that deal if you are following me on my Monate Instagram feed, which is Monica Monate. And there I give some more information and that's where you can also contact me if you are interested and need more guidance. It's a huge product line. I wouldn't recommend just jumping in and and picking the products you want to use willy nilly. I'm here to help you find what works really well for your hair and your needs. So again, make sure you're looking out for that special Black Friday deal, whether it's for you or a loved one. Let's get back to my interview with Julie now. So you, you brought up that as your addiction progressed, you had different things that you put in place to avoid its progression or to, to face it. You call them some coping mechanisms. What, what were some things that you were doing to avoid it or put it at bay? I was doing a lot of the textbook things that people with food issues and body issues do of chronic dieting. I was always trying the next big thing. Um, but I also for a while employed you know, positive things like exercising and eating healthy. And the first time I tried it, it worked. But then when you get off track or off course, you derail a little bit, you fall lower. And so then when you try the same solution again, it didn't work for me. And Mm -hmm. so then the problem would get bigger with, with each, which each thing I tried, which was usually some form of diet and exercise plan with each thing I tried every time it failed, I failed harder and I fell deeper and the problem got bigger and I, it got to the point where I no longer felt any control over it. And I I remember one day just thinking, I'm not going to try anymore. This is something that I can't fix and this is just who I'm going to be. And, um, but it was, it was mostly food restriction. And then I would try, I would wake up so many days and decide 
like you said, I had the wrong eating disorder. I wanted to be anorexic. Why couldn't I be anorexic? Because they look skinny. And I had all these food issues and I still wasn't skinny. And so I would wake up with this resolve to become an anorexic person. And then by lunch, I would be so obsessed with food that I would go binge. Mm -hmm. And so then I felt like I couldn't even be an anorexic person. I, I, I was failing at that. I was failing at, at everything. And with every fail, the next solution got more drastic and bigger and I failed harder each time. Oh, wow. Yes. I, I understand that feeling too. How, how, how can someone know then if they have moved beyond just, you know, in quotes, just being an emotional eater, um, into more of an addiction? I think, and, and this is tough because it manifests itself in so many ways. And again, a lot of people don't take you seriously until you are literally dying from obesity or something, you know, they don't, they don't take this food addiction thing seriously. And for me, it was realizing that I did not feel in control. I would wake up every day and say, I'm going to do this today food wise. And I could never do it. And I could, I, I just, I didn't feel like I had the capacity. It didn't. And in every other area of my life, I was very productive. I was very, I had a lot of discipline. I was accomplishing big things. I was but in the area of food, I, I could not, I, there was no willpower. There was not enough discipline. I, nothing could, could help me. And I was also doing things that were not consistent with, you know, with my beliefs. I was lying a lot about food. I was being very secretive. I would lie to my babysitter and say that I had to stay late at work, but really I just wanted time to go through a few drive throughs and eat alone in my car. Mm-hmm. Um, behavior that was not, I was not okay with it. And yet I felt completely out of control. I felt like every time I did something where I would lie or I would hide food or I would binge on something, I just felt completely at a loss and completely out of control. Like it it was bigger than me. And again, this is at the end of it. And I think there were signs, there were signs leading up to this where I would lose control momentarily. But again, I would try a new diet or a new plan or a new restriction. And I would kind of be able to like, you know, get myself back in the lane for a minute, but then it would just get bigger and bigger. And by the end, I felt completely powerless to do anything about it. That sounds like an awful place to be that, yeah, that low, you know, you talked about that first day of the rock bottom. Um, when you realized this is not what I want for my future or my children's future and something needs to change as you move towards that change, um, getting out of this place of feeling like you have no choice in it or no control. Um, when you initially started, you said you had friends and family not really take it seriously. Um, did you also find that with professionals that you might have reached out to or some therapists that you might have tried? It was interesting. I first reached out to actually that substance abuse teacher that I had in college. And because I just wanted to know, am I crazy? Like, I feel like food addiction is a thing. And I feel like this is where I'm at. And I would Google it. And things came up. So I knew it was I knew it was a thing. But and he replied and was very supportive. You know, he Hmm. as a professional, but he's a professor of addiction. So I think he comes from a much more compassionate place and understanding place than than a lot of people. And especially with my friends and family, none of us drink, none of us have ever used drugs. We don't have experience with addiction of any kind. And so for a lot of them, I think it was like a, 
they were scared of like addiction. What are you dropping that addiction word for? You know, like that, Mm. that's not, you know, we don't do that because the stigma is there. And, um, but as far as the, the professional world, I actually felt like it was taken more seriously than it was in my, in my close circle. And I Mm -hmm. think a lot of it is because I had done such a good job of hiding things that everyone was shocked. They were like, you don't have, what are you talking about? Like, because I had become a professional at hiding my life. I lived next door to my parents for eight years, like all through my husband's grad school. When we had all three of our kids, we lived literally next door to my parents. And when I started coming out and being honest about things, they had no idea. And I saw them on a daily basis and they lived next door. And I was that good at hiding and controlling that people had no idea. And so I had done myself a bigger disservice by creating this facade because then when I was ready to get help and ready to be honest, people didn't quite believe me. They didn't, they didn't see what I was talking about. You know, that's where I feel like I was selfish in my process too. When you have that facade, it is hard for people. It's hard to reach out a, because it's like shattering a big, um, wall with people mm-hmm. that you love and, and, and this image that you talked about, but also be, there's a big fear of it not being taken seriously, right. um, which just can be really devastating when you are reaching out for help. So when, how did you start doing that then? How did you start becoming open about it? Was it right around the same time where you found out you were pregnant or was it later on as you started your help getting help? It was, it was later on. I did not tell anyone about anything that I was trying. Um. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Which was different for me because in the past I had been very public with, I'm going to try this now, or I'm going to try this. And because I wanted the validation and I wanted, yeah, I wanted that attention, I think. And Mm -hmm. this time felt different because I needed this time to be different. And I didn't want that pressure of, well, if this one fails, I don't want to have to tell everyone that I failed again Mm -hmm. for one. And for another, I just felt like this needed to be something that was very private. And mm. so I did not, I didn't tell anyone. Um, I, I told my husband because we were in a, a really bad place um, because of how dark of a depression and a, I was so isolating and you know, that's a whole different topic, but mm-hmm. we were in a bad place and I finally found the humility, honestly, to reach out to him and say, you know what, I'm ready to, to try. And I, I'm going to try to do it this way. And I had found a program, it was a 12 step recovery program. And I decided that I wanted to give it a go. And I, um, I felt strongly that it it was something that I was supposed to try. 
And I also felt strongly that I needed to keep it very private. So it wasn't until, oh, almost a year after, I mean, my baby's first birthday, maybe that I started openly telling people about what I had been trying and working on and, and openly, it might've even been after that, that I, the first time I openly said to anyone on a public forum of, hi, I have food addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. I had let my very close circle in just because my eating habits change in accordance with this program. And so I needed them to, to understand why I was doing what I was doing, but I was very quiet and very private about it because it was something that was, I was not ready for feedback on, right. I was not ready to have people's opinions shared with me. And I was so scared of failing again that I didn't, I didn't want it to be public. Mm -hmm. Well, and that seemed to serve you better in the, in the long run in terms of doing it for that certain length of time. Mm -hmm. Um, So what was different for you then as you launched into uh, this 12 step program versus, you know, all the other times you tried to fix it or avoid it? I think the difference this time was that for one, I was pregnant. And so I wasn't as concerned with fixing my weight because I knew I was pregnant. And so I, I wasn't, I just wasn't as obsessed with the weight side of things. And I had reached a point of desperation where I knew I needed to change my life and I felt like my life problem was even bigger than my food problem, but I knew that they were connected. Yeah. And so I came at it from a very different spot of this isn't about hating myself. This isn't about hating my body. This is about needing to change and coming at it from a place of positivity of and humility of, I want to change, I need to change, and I'm willing. There is so much willingness in that mm-hmm. desperation of, I will, I'll do it, I'll do anything to change and to get help. And I had never come, every every other solution I had tried was very physical-based. The goals were very physical. And I would say, like, oh, yeah, eating healthy and exercising helps my mental health, too. But it never was really about that. At the end of the day, it was about... I want to be skinny and I've never been super skinny and I want that. So how can I get it? And this time it was my life is a mess and I'm not okay. And I'm willing now to accept that and to work on it. And so it was coming at it from a place of healing rather than a place of punishment of myself, of, of you're so terrible, punish yourself to Mm -hmm. try to fix it. Hmm. What, what else was helpful then as you um, moved into this program that really helped you propel forward to that healing that you so wanted? I think the first thing that helped me honestly was um, most 12-step programs are based on a higher power. And you can define that as you wish. But I had been in a place of uh, faith crisis and, and denial, and I had cut myself off completely from my higher power. And reintroducing that back into my life was, um, a big deal for me. And I wasn't super willing to do it at the beginning, but when I'm really being honest, that reintroduction of a higher power into my life and accepting that back into my life was a huge first step. And from then I have said before that everyone should work the 12 steps, whether you have addiction or not, because it's just a beautiful program to help you work on yourself and Mm. to teach you to be self-aware and it introduced this theory to me that I had never understood before that you can accept your flaws and want to change them without hating yourself over them. And I had never understood that concept before that 
you can admit and accept that things aren't the way that you want them and you don't have to hate yourself over it. You can kind of skip that self-beating and instead be curious without attaching judgment and take that self-evaluation and, and really get honest and work on yourself in a way that I had never learned through any other program. And so I believe that the 12 steps and the, the way that they, they help you evaluate yourself and work on yourself all while doing it through a higher power is really what helped me, you know, trigger this change and, and keep it in such a positive light because I was no longer beating myself up. Mm. I was no longer hating what was, I was just moving forward and I was just working on today. And, and that, that mentality and that focus on, on changing myself without hating myself was life changing for me. Wow. And, and to, and to um, remove it from your body as well, like you said, like having a different end product in mind. Right. I wasn't even concerned with the weight loss side of it because I knew I was getting more and more pregnant. So I wasn't really mm-hmm. hopeful that the scale would be dropping and I didn't really even attach it to my physical appearance anymore. It was, it was really about changing my life and changing my, myself and, and the tools that I learned through, through that program really did facilitate that change. A few of my friends who have uh, struggled with eating disorders have had, um, you know, despite years of wanting to change, haven't really wanted to change, if that makes sense. They've been afraid of losing the eating disorder. Um, was that an ever an issue for you, this, this fear of losing this way of coping and, and dealing with life? I think that I didn't, because I think that because my food issues didn't give me the physical results that I wanted, like I said, I wanted to be anorexic. And I think mm-hmm. that if, if my eating disorder and if my food addiction was giving me the physical results that I wanted, it would have been terrifying for me to leave it. But because I didn't like where I was in any form, I wasn't really afraid of changing that. Mm-hmm. And this program was the first thing that gave me hope of maybe achieving that skinniness that I had wanted since as long as I could remember. And Mm. so I would definitely be lying if I said that wasn't a part of my motivation. You know, I saw, I saw the results. I saw people getting as skinny as I had dreamed of being. And so while at the very beginning, that wasn't, I, that wasn't on the forefront of my mind and I was able to focus more on the other stuff that quickly became part of the motivation of doing this. Yes. As a, as I think that's really common for for so many people who are trying to recover from this sort of thing. So what did that look like as you, as you were trying to work on yourself within the program guidelines? And then how did that eventually transition to maybe some other unhealthy um, ways of looking at it and um, what you had to do? Yeah. I mean, so yeah, full disclosure, I don't do the program anymore. So obviously something switched for me and, Mm -hmm. um, And it really was this idea of I was getting so much better in so many ways, but the food side of it, I thought was getting better. And it, and it did teach me a lot of things that I think are valuable, but that it taught me to, that I could only control my food. Like I can't control anything else and letting go of that control in other areas of my life was very productive. I couldn't control the people. I couldn't control what people thought of me. I couldn't letting go of that control was very productive in my life of letting down that facade and being honest and, 
and being real with people and myself, that was very productive, but it transitioned to where I put all my focus in, but I can control my food and I can be perfect in my food. And for a year I was perfect to the measured ounce, to the Mm. everything. I was literally perfect. I mean, people would say like, Oh, didn't you have a cheat day? No, not one slip up. I was perfect in adherence to this, this food plan. And to the point where I became very obsessive about it. Mm. And one night, the first time I realized that maybe it was getting to a point of not okay was I went out to dinner with a new friend and I usually avoided eating out at all costs. Um, it was mm. sort of a trigger for me and it made me really uncomfortable because I wasn't completely in control, right? I, I wasn't the one making the food and that made me really uncomfortable, but I, I wanted to be social. So I went out to dinner one night and they put cheese on my salad and I thought it was shredded carrots. So I took a bite and I, in the bite, I realized it was cheese and not shredded carrots. And I was not supposed to have cheese on my salad. And I went home that night and I sobbed uncontrollably for like four hours because mm. I had accidentally eaten a bite of cheese. Oh, wow. And I was, I was just sobbing and sobbing. And my husband, who had been very supportive of me doing this program because he saw what it was doing for me. He saw the, the personality changes and the, you know, the ability to, to cope that I was gaining. So he had been very supportive. And that was the first night that he just sort of said, are you sure that, that this is okay? <laughs> and I, of course, was just like, well, yes, this is, you know, I screwed up. And that was the first time that I realized how much the perfectionism and the control over my food was, had given me a whole new set of problems. I had gone from food obsessed in one way to completely food obsessed and compulsive mm-hmm. in another way. And that was the first night that it really scared me and it ended up taking me probably five more months to decide to leave the program um, because leaving that program was terrifying because yeah. I was letting go of the control. I was, I was giving up the perfection of my food and it had literally been perfect. And I had never been perfect at anything in my whole life, but I had always been the perfectionist. I had always wanted to be perfect, mm. but I had never quite made it. But this time I was perfect. And I remember thinking that so many nights going to bed of, I am perfect at this. I was perfect today. And that feeling of like finally being in control of something so much, something that I had wanted control of my whole life and never been able to get control of. And I was finally so much in control of it that I was perfect at it. That fueled my fire. And that just kept me going because I thought, look at me, like, look how great I am. I'm finally perfect at something that I never thought I could be perfect at. Well, it sounds like you had exchanged one uh, form of an eating disorder to another, um, but uh, but like you said, one that is more socially acceptable, mm-hmm. you know, that can exactly. be masked as healthy, um, which had been my problem initially. You know, we like kind of reversed there um, right. in, our, in our paths. Um, so there's well, just... And it's not just accepted. It's not just accepted. It's praised. I mean, I yes. was getting so oh much goodness. attention and praise, so much, more than I had ever gotten in my life. And for someone who had longed for that validation my whole life all I have ever wanted was to be the skinny girl and I was finally the skinny girl I was really skinny and people were telling me how great I looked and so that combined with this control I mean it was the perfect storm of Mm. fueling that that fire of yes keep going keep going keep going that obsession because I yeah I had never been more praised in my life than than when I was doing that never when you're at some of the most unhealthy mentally place, um, places of your entire life, too. Right. Oh, that's sad. Um, and too common. You know, I could go on a mm-hmm. soapbox with that, too. <laughs> 
So let's talk then about as you departed the program, which seems like such an incredibly brave decision that you made to do that. I am so, um, I'm so inspired by your choice to do that. Um, what was it like then as you're launching into a whole other, um, area of darkness, you know, of not knowing exactly what's okay and what's not and how to still improve, you know, with, within this area of your life. It was so scary, but also I remember the day that I decided to leave, this burden was lifted off of me because I had known for so long that that's what needed to happen, but I was resisting it so hard because I was terrified. And I think at the root of the fear was maybe what you were referring to referring to earlier when people go into recovery from eating disorders, they're scared. I was scared because mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to let this go. I, I, I didn't want to gain weight. Um, and I didn't want people to think that I was failing. And at this point I had become pretty public with my food changes and, um, and I, I had so much fear that even my online platform would fall apart because I was no longer going to be this pillar of perfect eating that I had been because people were inspired by my perfect adherence to never eating sugar, right? Never, ever. And even on my birthday, I didn't eat sugar and more praise, more validation. Um, Was that part of the program? Um, that particular guideline is yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, um, but there were so many and I, and I was perfect at it and I had built this, you know, there's just so much praise, not just around my, my appearance, but also my behavior. It was, I was the ultimate vision of self-control and self-discipline. And I was terrified to change that image. And I was also, you know, I was terrified of, I had learned to love and accept myself on a level, but I was also very scared that it was a conditional level. It was because I was finally as skinny as I always wanted to be. And maybe that's the reason I was loving myself was because I was finally what I thought I needed to be. And, but I remember feeling so much peace around knowing that my mental changes would stay. I had learned so much through the self-evaluation and the growth and the, the learning that way that I knew that I could keep my routines and that I could keep that mental growth and I could keep that, those abilities that I had gained to cope with life and to better myself. I knew I could keep that. I had so much belief in myself in that, that I could keep that side of it. And that was the good side of the program for me. And so all I was doing was walking away from the food side. I I wasn't walking away from the self-improvement. I wasn't walking away from bettering myself and and trying to be Mm. self-aware and progressive with myself. I was just walking away from the food. But walking away from the food was terrifying. It was completely terrifying because I didn't know what to do. I hadn't been in control. I thought I was. But I had been adhering to someone else telling me what to do. And so when put on my own, I felt completely at a loss as to what to do. Yeah. Um, so would you recommend a, tw- a 12-step program then for someone who f- sees they're in the same shoes? And maybe it's one of those things like um, maybe you recommend um, part of it, but not all of it, or for certain people. Right. I, I feel like with addiction of any kind, and of course, I only speak from the food addiction background, but... One thing I've learned from being in the community, I attended AA meetings for a solid year every week, and I've never drank an alcohol in my life, and yet I totally related to these people because there are just common things that addictions have. And at the root of it all, I believe that it's it's learning to improve 
work on yourself when mm-hmm. it's personal development. All a 12 step program is, is a personal development course. That's, that's really yeah. all it is. And, mm-hmm. and so hands down, I would recommend the 12 steps to every single person addict or not, whether mm. this particular program or any particular program is right for you, I think is completely individually based. So it's, it's really hard for me because people always ask like, well, would you recommend it? I mean, people re- reach out to me privately all the time and I, I can't deny that it did so much good for me, but I also, I left for a reason. I, you know, there was a reason that it, it stopped being the right thing for me. Um, I still have friends that, that do it and it continues to feel right for them. And so I guess my biggest recommendation would be to really stay in touch with yourself enough to know when things are not okay and when they are okay. And I know that sounds really vague and confusing, but it was very clear to me at an earlier point that this was not good and not right for me, but I denied it because the disease was bigger than that. The desire to be thin was bigger than that. The the self-image problems and even the addiction were bigger than that. And so I wasn't able to, to accept it because in my mind, I had finally found the thing that worked for me but when it, it wasn't working the way that I wanted it to completely. And, and so I guess there's no short answer for that. Maybe yes, mm-hmm. maybe no. Yeah. Um, but as far as the actual 12 step side of things go, I would get the workbook on Amazon today, no matter who you are and start reading through those because it's phenomenal. The, the personal development and the healing and the, the stuff that happens in those 12 steps, I think anyone on earth could benefit from. Well, and, you know, I was thinking when you were talking about going to those um, AA meetings for a whole year, that the difference between food addiction and other addictions is with these other addictions, they can say, I mean, stay out of the bar, you know, the rest mm-hmm. of your life, um, both literally and figuratively. But with food, you, you have to eat. You have to eat. And I think that yeah. when I first started feeling like I have food addiction, I thought, well, what am I supposed to do? You can't abstain, you know, and I mm. think sex addiction is similar. You can't. I mean, you, you can technically abstain, but from sex, but you know, if you want to have relationships anyway, not to, not to go there, but I feel like food addiction and sex addiction are that way. They're not things that you can necessarily just say, Nope, I'm going to abstain from completely. Mm-hmm. And so it's a whole unique animal in learning how yes. to live with it and, and not just abstain from it. You can't just abstain from it. And with any addiction, I believe when you put down one, you pick up another. The first month that I yeah. was doing a food addiction program, my credit card bill was through the roof because I picked up spending. You know, I needed. Oh my goodness, and so that's yes. at, at the root of addiction. It's learning how to cope with life through positive, productive huh. mechanisms, not your substance. And when it became really clear to me that I wanted to live my life substance free of anything. I wanted to cope with life in a productive, positive way and not through a destructive way. And mm-hmm. th- you're going to cope with things one way or another, but learning to cope with it and deal with it and better yourself through a, a positive means instead of a self-destructive means is the key to fighting an addiction, I believe. Wow. Uh, and, and, you know, with food, it seems like maybe what uh, was not helpful for you in the particular program you were in uh, at the end of it was how um, it seemed like food in general just became something really fearful or fear driven. Is that, was that the case for you or was that just how you interpreted it? You feel, I think it could be just, and and like I said, I mean, there's lots of people who are still thriving doing this program, but my personality and the way that I interpreted things, I was terrified all the time. I lived in a lot of fear of doing the wrong thing and screwing up. 
And I think that mm-hmm. I attached actual self-worth to, to the perfection of my food yeah. and that didn't serve me. So how did you move, uh, beyond, uh, to making friends with food, I guess, to, to learning how to love it? Because for me, that is personally what has been the most helpful is being able to say food is, um, fun. It's, it is enjoyable. It's a rich part of my life instead of it being a no, no, no kind Mm -hmm. of thing. I feel like that is a work in progress still, you Uh know, I, I, there's not a day that goes by that I don't kind of reference my old way of thinking. And I still, I, I'm still fresh. I mean, it's a year and a half now that I've been kind of on my own and, Um, it is still such a work in progress to not attach that control and also that worth, you know, I've obviously gained Mm. a few pounds since I left that program and I'm at a very healthy weight right now, but it's hard to not every day look in the mirror and think, well, I looked better those 15 pounds ago, you know, I, and, and every day it's still something that I, that I have to work on every day of, of, changing that, that frame of mind Mm -hmm. and, you know, talk to me in a year and maybe I'll have more answers on, on that progress. But for now it really is, it's still a struggle for me. And, um, it's something that I, I still work on, but I think the biggest thing has been learning true self-care to the point and self-improvement to the point where my worth is no longer attached to things like my appearance or even my behavior. You know, my worth remains untouched when my behavior can be good or bad. My choices can be good or bad. My body can go up and down, but my worth remains untouched. And I am very confident in that place of, of taking care of myself and valuing myself to a level where I know my worth isn't, isn't debatable anymore. And so that solid base of honest self-love and self-acceptance unconditionally is what gets me through and helps me keep working on this and and lets me and lets me keep working on it I think and stay in a positive place. Well, as someone who has been there, you know, for 11 years too, uh, I can tell you it does get better and easier. It really does. It, but um I think what you just said is the most important part is keeping perspective of what you really want out of your life and out of how to, out of how you live and how you eat and, and all that and holding on to that reframing that you have built for yourself. Right. And I think so much of it is, is allowing yourself to be okay with other people thinking you're failing. Honestly, I, I, I yeah. feel like, you know, it's, it's okay. It doesn't matter. Like, building the life that you want and making the choices intentionally to build the life and the experience and the legacy that you want and not letting other people's opinions influence that is, is really hard to do. And for me, so much of it is accepting that people are going to think that I'm failing even when I feel like I'm succeeding because Mm -hmm. we all have different values and expectations. And, and so much of my obsession with perfectionism has been driven by other people thinking that I'm great and other people thinking that I'm succeeding, even if it felt like failure to me, even if it created a chaotic life that I didn't like, if other people thought I was succeeding, if other people thought I was great, it didn't matter. And shifting that to understanding it doesn't matter if other people even think you're failing, you know, if you're doing Mm. what you want and what you think is right, that's, that's what matters. As cheesy as it sounds, that's what matters. (laughs) Mm, Absolutely. 
So you, you've talked about a root of all addictions as a coping problem. So what are some ways that you have learned to positively cope now that have helped you with this reframing that you've had, um, but also continue to progress as you're trying to still improve your relationship with food? Uh, routine is a big one for me. I have a daily routine that I do every day, whether I feel like doing it or not. And that really helps just keep me moving in the right direction, regardless of my feelings. Um, understanding that I don't have to act the way I feel all the time, that I can feel a certain way, but still take a different action instead. And that I'm responsible for taking that right action. Hmm. Um, daily meditation where I really sit with myself and allow myself to at the beginning of each day, I meditate and I, I reflect on, at that time, what happened yesterday. I think of yesterday in the morning and because in the morning I'm more positive-minded, I'm a morning person. And so I always think it's helpful, your most positive time of day, to meditate on what you can improve on. Because if you do that from a negative space, you can turn it to self-beating really quick. But if you do it from a positive space and reflect on what did I do that I liked today? What did I do that I wish I could be better at tomorrow? Um, so in the morning, I, I sort of meditate on that and and try to stay self-aware and introspective enough to make those corrections and to make those goals for change. And then at night, I meditate simply on the successes of the day. At the end of the day, I I only let myself think about the things that I accomplished that day and the little moments, the little victories um, so that I keep myself in a, a positive headspace because negativity is really a fuel to the problem. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, routine meditation, um, and talking. I mean, that's the main reason that my, my platform is what it is. It's selfish sometimes because it, it helps me in my recovery, um, hmm. being open with it and saying, Hey, this is, this is what I'm going on. It, it releases a shame saying it out loud, telling someone, um, and reaching for connection instead of a substance, you know, when I'm having a hard time or going through a hard thing, reaching out to a friend or writing about it instead of making it go away, kind of embracing that struggle and letting that struggle make me stronger instead of trying to hide the struggle um, is big in releasing the shame and and working through that in a, in a powerful way and progressing through it. Julie, this has just been the most incredible um, interview that I just want to ask you so much more, but we are running out of time. So I'd like to uh, ask you my final question. Uh, but before I do that, can you tell people where to find you? Yeah, I am the Julie Taylor over on Instagram and through my profile there, you'll find my YouTube channel linked and um, other blog articles that I've shared for various websites, I link all through my Instagram profile. So that's sort of the catch all for the moment. So you can go find me there at the Julie Taylor. Great. Uh, the final question for you. Um, what have you learned about yourself the past few years that you would like to share with our listeners? I think the main thing that I've learned is instead of loving myself, despite certain things, I've learned to love myself because of those things and to let those things, those struggles, those flaws, those aren't things that I am ashamed of and they're not, they're what fuel my, my self-love and my self-acceptance and they're not things that I try to try to run away from. So instead of loving myself despite of things, I love myself because of them. Oh, so wonderful, Julie. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. I really appreciate it. 
Oh, thank you for having me. It was so fun to chat with you. Isn't Julie amazing? And she just has a way with words. And you're in luck because she is coming out with an ebook now, and it will come out December 1st. If you want to know more details on that, I would check out her Instagram page, The Julie Taylor. I think so many of us can relate to the struggle that she has been through, whether it's food or something else. A lot of us have been there and a lot of us may be there in the future. So Julie, I'm so grateful for your openness and your honesty in sharing the nitty gritty behind it and giving us all strength to try to improve ourselves as well. Now, next week is Thanksgiving break, but I will still have a really special episode for you. And it's Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. She's back on the show again. You're going to love this episode. She never disappoints. So please still come back next Wednesday as you are preparing for the big feast the next day and listen in to Dr. Jennifer Finlayson Fife. Thank you for coming back each week. Thank you for subscribing and leaving reviews. We are so close to my goal and we are almost to the year mark too. I'm going to have a celebratory special podcast episode about the first year and how it's all been and just some reflection on it. Um, And I can't wait to share that with you soon. So thank you everyone. And I'll see you next Wednesday. And until then, take care of yourself.